Hey, what's up, freedom lovers? It's no secret we live in interesting times, but you know what? If you're a student of history, you have context and realize that humans have always lived in interesting times. That's something we talk about in this interview with Jason Gregory. Specifically, we look at ancient China and the Warring States period when kind of like Taoism, the principles of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching were born. And Jason and I talk about in this interview how you can deal with uncertain times, how you can push fear aside, live according to the three treasures laid out by Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching, simplicity, patience, compassion. Now, Jason is an Eastern philosopher. He's an author of a number of great books that have had a massive positive impact on my life. He's also a documentary filmmaker. Down in the comments, down in the post, wherever you're watching this, there's links so you can learn more about Jason. But today we talk about fear, love, and Taoism and how you can use the principles of Taoism to deal with the fear and uncertainty in our world. Hope you enjoyed this interview with Jason Gregory. All right, Jason Gregory, thank you for joining us. And and this is something you and I have talked about for a while. And, and uh, I've been doing a series called Fear, Love, and Creativity. Um, and it was an idea I had last year and kind of into this year. And we've done a number of interviews, including this one. We have some more that we're rolling out. Really to look at, especially over the last two years, you see kind of the split. And it's pretty stark. People who are ruled by fear who are ruled by the cortisol and they're in constant fight, flight, or freeze. And then you see people who operate out of a place of love, love for themselves, compassion for themselves and the people around them, and maybe are a little more willing to have an open mind on things, think creatively. As I like to say, when you're in a state of fear, you're actually stupider, right? Because your survival mechanism is survive versus let's sit back and have a more creative, uh, creative thought. And so we kind of investigate on what's the best mindset, especially in an era where we need creative thinkers, where we have a lot of challenges going on, not just COVID, not just a number of things, right? It, it, it would appear, if you don't have a, a contextual view of history, that the world is on fire and it's never been crazier and all this stuff. <laughs> um, anyways, with that, I want to thank you for coming on the program and... and um, uh, I definitely want to get into books. You've had a, a huge impact on me getting into your books, your new book that's coming out, which I think directly relates to this issue of fear uh, during a time of uncertainty. So uh, anyways, Jason, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me on, Kurt. It's a pleasure, a real pleasure. And, and, and it's, yeah, it's been a pleasure getting to know you in the last year. So, and, and I thoroughly enjoy your work and everything you're doing. So you're, you're also an inspiration to a lot of us as well. Well, I appreciate right. that. And, and, you know, you as mentioned offline, I, I came to your, your writings last year when, you know, shortly after my wife and I sold basically everything we owned and donated everything we owned and hit the road with our four kids. And we've been traveling around and, um, you know, I still felt a little bit of that stress, even though we were in the mountains, we weren't quite hermits, but we were in the mountains and we were living there. And I still felt stress, self-created stress about even little things about this and work and everything. Yep. And so in looking at, all right, how, how can I live according to what the Chinese call Uwe? Mm -hmm. uh, and I came to your book, Effortless Living, and, and really have, have binged on all of your writings uh, over the last year. And you have a new book, uh, Spiritual Freedom in the, in the Digital Age, which is, which is needed right now. Um, but 
you know, in, in the introduction, I talked about who you were in your books, et cetera. And, yep. but I'd love to, to hear, I mean, you, you, you are a, I came to you because of readings on the Tao and the Tao Te Ching, uh, Lao Tzu and, 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 and the such, but really you write about all, not just even Eastern religions. I mean, you write about all religions and bring them in and, and bring pieces in. And, and I really love that because it, the con when you really look at the common themes versus the differences of different faith traditions and, and spirituality, you find those common denominators and really a light bulb goes off of, oh, okay, that might be what they were saying. You know? Yeah, 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 definitely. Well, some of the early uh, readings that had an impact on me was uh, Aldous Huxley, especially mm -hmm. like with the perennial philosophy. It's probably one of the uh, one of the best books I've ever read, but I, I don't know if it was, had the most impact in my life, but it gave me a clear perspective of, like you mentioned, the similarities within a lot of the spiritual traditions and religions around the world, rather than looking at a lot of the differences, you know, which yeah. uh, particularly the Abrahamic faiths tend to uh, look at as opposed to the Eastern traditions. Uh, in saying that, that, you know, there are, there are differences, but a lot of the common themes are, stand the test of time right we, even if we go back into gnosticism even if we go back into earlier hermeticism in egypt there's this common theme of like this this ultimate reality that we can harmonize with or, or that we are actually at the base of our nature but then that can get you know that that whole concept can get warped and changed over time and it has through the abrahamic faiths like so the concept of god has become like a a monarchical version of god it's yeah. become a kingly version of god as opposed to like in the East where like, if you read the Tao Te Ching, the, uh, it said Lao Tzu states that the, the Tao loves and nourishes all, but does not lord it over them. You know, mm -hmm. so we're part of something much greater and our life is in our hands, so to speak. But the, the whole idea is, you know, we need to kind of downregulate this sense of self that kind of is, is the product of socialization to experience that, that ultimate reality so and to your point earlier about the the attitude and, and also to the point when you're in the mountains to to get to that state of that ultimate reality we have to have like this attitude of of way which means like it can be translated in, in many different ways as as non-doing effortless action intelligent spontaneity uh non-deliberate action you know all of these ways but it's really the path of non-interference it's about allowing mm -hmm. nature to run its course and about you not meddling in the affairs of others and and you know other nations or what have you. It's a, it's a real complete trust in the nature of the world, which you know we could say is very difficult in this day and age because a lot of things are happening and and the world has sped up. And Lao Tzu is he, he's not an idiot and he would he would tell you to keep your faculties together, you know. But also yeah. to you you have to really rely on that sort of Uwe attitude as well to even. Uh, to guide your actions, you know? So like you mentioned, you, you, you felt the need for yourself, Kurt, and your family to leave society and, and to take your life in your own hands. You know, Uwe, uh, Lao Tzu would probably sit around and, and clap at that because he too was one, if, if, we, if we believe Lao Tzu to be a historical figure, he too was one who jumped on the back of an ox and left society, you know, because mm -hmm. he, he saw the, the troubles that Confucianism was bringing to the civilization that he was living in the socialization that was being forced upon the people. And it's kind of ironic that we have all of these systems of thought, these external systems of thought 
that we superimpose on ourselves uh, as if they are natural. So we are trying to mm. naturalize something which is artificial. And this is what Lao Tzu's big problem was with societies. And, and you know, we don't have to talk about that in the modern day, right? We see plenty yeah. of that happening. So It's funny. And you write a lot about socialization and conformity and, and, and socialization equaling conformity. And, yeah. you know, my wife and I, we homeschool. And the number one question, if you ask any homeschooler that people get it, the number one question is, there's, well, there's two things that people will say. The first thing is, well, I knew some homeschool kids growing up and I stopped them. I said, don't, and don't tell me they were weird. Yeah. How'd you know? I'm like, cause that everyone says that. Right. The second thing though is, but what about the socialization? Mm. And what I hear in my head is what about the conformity? I don't even hear about what about the socialization? What I hear about the conformity. And for those folks who haven't, you know, you hear about Confucius and, you know, people, most people, at least in the West and the U.S., their, their introduction to Confucianism and where they end with Confucianism is uh, a little white slip of paper and a fortune cookie, right? Some Confucian saying, but, yeah, yeah. but uh, I'm probably going to dumb this down and butcher it. But basically, Confucius took kind of the principles of Tao and really tried to turn it almost into an organized religion with a lot of regulations and rules and stricture, everything from what? tying of the feet to shrink them down to whatever. And Lao Tzu was, you know, in modern day terms, kind of maybe Confucianism was a little authoritarian. Lao Tzu was more libertarian, right? I mean, yep. it, 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 probably not an exact science there, but to put it in modern yeah. terms, right? Definitely, definitely. You're hundred percent right, Kurt. It's Confucius took the teachings of the Tao, which, you know, from, from evidence, it, predates the warring states period who knows how long it predates it but like that knowledge of Taoism, which was which was in smaller scale societies uh existed right and then once we got into larger scale societies where confucius you know was was going from state to state trying to promote his philosophy was a way of trying to sort of induce the Tao within social norms and and principles and and rules and regulations where Lao Tzu was like the symbol of the the sort of the social rebel, where he was like, no, no, human nature is fundamentally good. It's the self-cultivation and the socialization process that makes us bad and creates. Right. So like you're, you're creating a rule for a thief, but a thief doesn't exist if you don't, you know, we don't create all of this, you know, the society we have. Um, I mean, we don't want to take that, too literally, but like Lao Tzu's point is that human nature is fundamentally good before the socialization begins to warp us and shape us into the people we think we are. So by the time we're, you know, so when we're born, right, our subconscious from one to four years old is basically completely turned on. So yeah. if you're just downloading kids with like cartoons and this and that and, and, and everything, that's going to be in some sense who they become. And, and even further than that, we go through the education process, we go through the so-called culture that we should be a part of, and then we become this, what, what there's two metaphors in, in ancient China, there's the carving and polishing metaphor, and then there's the uncarved block, or the unhewn wood. And so Confucius's uh, metaphor is the carving and polishing one. So he believes that we are beasts from birth, so we need to be shaped, polished, and carved he didn't have a high opinion of women. That's why they had to constrict their feet because this was some sort of beauty standard. 
and you had to sleep a certain way to conform to your role in society. A bit strange, right? Like it's 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 a pretty exact well, not exact. It's a pretty precise science that or, or social science that he was trying to impose on people. Whereas, as opposed to that, you have the the uncarved block and the unhewn wood, which is Lao Tzu's mentality of not cultivating, allowing life to be as it is, allowing that natural spontaneity to come out of the individual because we all have this, in some sense, this pattern or uniqueness to each and every individual that we can express when we are more aligned with the Tao or more aligned with the way things are, as opposed to, you know, shaping Jason this way or shaping Kurt that way. Kurt should think like this because he's American and, Jason should think opposite because he's Australian. And, you know, then we, we we create all these artificial boundaries that we know when we're kids don't exist. When mm. we're a kid, we're just running around with our friends at six years old and we're throwing mud at each other and laughing about everything. And, you know, and we're looking at adults as if like, who are these stiffs, you know? <laughs> so, you know, yeah. and that's kind of Lao perspective. Like, and that's why he always says that we should kind of revert back to the childlike mind because it's, it's more of, state of innocence as well right like where we allow things to happen we don't pretend we know everything you know as opposed to when we become adults it's funny that you say when you describe confucianism and the kind of the the odd and very exact traditions and regulations and rules they say, oh it sounds weird but it actually to me as you were de- describing it's like sounds a lot like uh, some you know judeo-christian organized religions uh, of today And, you know, I grew up going to Catholic school. And so there's traditions, there's things you do as rote memorization. And, you know, like you said, between one and four, one and seven, that, that uncarved block becomes polished in the way that they want it. Now, something, you know, as someone goes through, obviously Lao Tzu kind of uh, resisted that. Um, There were people probably who went through, obviously went through Confucianism and kind of came over so someone is 35 years old, 40 years old. And in addition to that, that kind of deep programming mm-hmm. uh, where they were born as an uncarved block, but then, you know, really changed and sculpted by these rules and regulations and programming, not just one through four, one through seven, but like now 20, 30. And every time you turn on, you know, to modern, turn on a TV or watch the news or whatever you get programmed. What do you say someone who's 35 or 40 to get back to being that uncarved block. Yeah, to, well, that's to one of my books, as, as you as you know, Kurt, is uh, fasting the mind, right? Fasting the mind is one of the, of the great Taoist remedies for that. Now, what is that? Now, fasting the mind was a, it was a, uh, a phrase that was coined by Zhuangzi, who was the second most famous, or, you know, equal with Lao Tzu as the famous, most famous Taoist. And he existed also in the Warring States period. And and the story in the in the Zhuangzi, the fasting the mind passage is about uh, there's a ruler in in the state of Wei, right? And so Yun Wei, actually Confucius in this story plays the mouthpiece of Zhuangzi. There's other stories in the Zhuangzi text where Zhuangzi makes fun of Confucius, but in this story, right. you know, he's he's playing the sage figure because of that period of time he was considered like the most learned sage, for example. And so Confucius in this story is telling Yun Wei. Oh, actually, Yan Wei is telling Confucius, I'm going to go to this state and I'm going to make the rule, because there's a ruler in the state of Wei who's treating the people poorly. 
you know, and, and, and he's rich and he's, you know, he's just your average day grub, right? And so uh, Yanwei is going, I'm going to go there and I'm going to make him benevolent. I'm going to make him humble and this and that. And, and Confucius keeps shooting him down saying, you've got too many plans and too many opinions about how to change him. You need to fast the mind. And, and Yanwei is kind of like, what, what do you mean by fast the mind? Like, I don't drink any wine. You know, I, I often, I go for periods of time where I don't eat. And he's like, well, that's the fasting of the body. That's not the fasting of the mind. You need to fast this thing. In in in, in Taoism, it's uh, in Chinese, it's called Qing. Uh, so in Roman in Pinyin Romanization, you'd spell that Q I N G. And so this idea, uh, Zhuangzi kind of employs. It's from Maltzer. So Maoist logical theory, which is uh, Maltzer was also another sage-like figure in, in the Warring States period, but he was more like more like Confucius, you could say. He was, uh, yeah, anyway, there's a lot we could say about him, but he had this idea of Qing where, and this is very similar to uh, in, in Hindu philosophy and Buddhism as well, where we have this problem in our mind. Uh, well, before I get to that, Qing actually means species-specific essence in, in Chinese in, in, from the Moist logical uh, theory perspective. And so uh, Zhuangzi says that Qing actually is a flaw in humans so you know we could look at a horse gallop right and and the horse's graceful gallop is its ching but our ching even though we have it is a flaw and our and our and our ching our species specific essence is the ability to discern between this and that hmm. so now why he says that is because it's it's all well and good to discern between this and that but usually what happens is we overlay that with an artificial linguistic framework that we've been taught with which creates right and wrong you know, good and bad, all based on how we see the world personally, right? And so hmm. uh, Zhuangzi, or Confucius as Zhuangzi, or Zhuangzi as Confucius, I should say, is explaining this to Yanwei that this is what the fasting in the mind is. You have to get rid of this ability to constantly dissect the world up into this and that based on your own opinion. And so this is what the fasting in the mind is. And, and the lifestyle approach to that is, which I explain in my book is about not allowing, for example, the news, right? The media are a, are a big influence on people's lives in this modern day. So if we block, because we take in energy through our eyes and ears, right? Which affect the, which affect us. And so if we block that energy from coming into our mind, this begins to work deeper on this ability of this and that where obviously to couple with this, you want to go into start practicing a form of meditation as well and, mm -hmm. and actually have a, make it a daily habit, right? I speak about a lot about in fasting the mind and also an emotional intuition for peak performance about these sort of these four fundamentals that make us human, which is, uh, which uh, is sleep, exercise, meditation, and nutrition. And if you keep these four, uh, lifestyle uh principles in in sync with yourself then you won't your mind won't be thrown off uh by you know the media and and by you know you should be like this or you shouldn't be like that and it's not as simplistic as that like it, it takes longer and longer and longer to do like the whole fasting the mind lifestyle approach is not you know you're not going to be enlightened tomorrow right but you're going to be uh, at least observant of what's infiltrating your consciousness mm. and influencing and enhancing your ching to react 
to the changing landscape. And so that's sort of what Zhuangzi's point is. Like we have to practice fasting the mind because if we don't, then we're only going to continue to have strong opinions. We're only going to continue to think this is right and that is wrong. And in the end of the day, who was right and who was wrong, you know? And so, yeah. and that's where Taoism in some sense, you know, has, would have a problem. Well, it has a problem with Confucianism, right? Taoism was a response to Confucianism in some sense. It's a critique of Confucianism because of Confucianism, I liked what you mentioned before, Kurt, the similarities between Confucianism and the Judeo-Christian traditions, right? Like there's this very moral-based rules and regulation society that they build and in psychology they build where Taoism is very amoral mm. because when you peel the layers back of your personality and you dissect the ching, then you realize that, wait up, like my, what I think is good, Kurt actually thinks is evil. So like who is, who is right here fundamentally, you know? That doesn't mean we, we, we should circumvent common sense and, you know, intuition and this and that. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that this artificial linguistic framework that we've sort of downloaded as a human for, through socialization is how we filter society. And so we need to kind of peel those layers away to, to see reality then as it truly is. It, it's so interesting because when you when you say when you when you talk about Confucianism and moral and and Taoism and amoral, I, some people might say, "Well, what's wrong with morals? What's wrong with morals?" But that goes to a fundamental, you know, uh, belief in. Uh, well, I guess it goes back to the good or bad, right? Are, are humans just fundamentally in their nature evil beings that, without the help of strict rules and regulations, we would all murder each other, and. And it's kind of like, well, I have the freedom not to be enslaved. I have the freedom yeah. not to be murdered, which thereby means you have the same right. So I'm not going to murder you because I don't want to be murdered. Right. And, and it's <laughs> funny how humans can be self-organizing in that way to understand that. Yeah. But everything seems to be and, and that, that the, the essence in the Ching being a flaw. Right. Because we have that knowledge of good and evil. You know, once again, you, you look at these these common themes between uh, different spiritualities. It's like, well, the Garden of Eden, right? And the big now, there's a, a translation that many are taught in, in which it's, well, the woman was bad, she tempted Adam, and therefore we have original sin because humans are bad and they have to spend the rest of their life slithering on their stomachs, right? When you could actually really look at it to say, well, kind of the the fall. Of, not, I don't want to say the fall of humanity, mm. but you look at humanity's kind of greatest and maybe it's that flaw. The essence is that constant obsession with good and evil and right and wrong and feeling we're being judged, which creates a separation, which kind of bringing it all the way back to fear when it's me against you. And it's, I mean, we certainly have that context in today's society, right? Whatever side of whatever issue you're on, it's, well, it's now red versus blue here in the U.S. It's red versus blue, Democrat versus Republican. Now it's mass versus unmasked. It's vax versus vax. Everything separates us, which can create not only anger, mm. but can create that fear, right? Because we're all scared of one another, yep. um, which I guess it goes to that flaw. Yep. Uh, one thing that I have, it's a question, but also a, a kind of explaining it, the, 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 you know, the contextual history of this is that, you know, for two years, 
there's been some chaos following like a decade of pretty easy, easy times, you know, in the, in West, in the Western world. And so people, you know, the last two years seems like it's been an eternity, but like you mentioned the warring States period, right? How long did the warring States period go on? And that was no like fun time to be alive. Right. And so these, it's not like Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu are like living in these, these easy times. And it's really easy to do this, right? They had a lot of stimuli and inputs and fear and anger going on around them. Right. They did. They did. And it lasted three to three to 400 years, the Warring <laughs> States period. You know, so, I mean, it's, it's generations, right? Like, so it's like buckle, buckle in, you know, get ready. Like we're, we're in for a bit of a tough, I'm not saying we're going to go through that with the pandemic, but you know, it, they, they did have to deal with probably something, a lot more life threatening than what you and I have to deal with, right? Like with this, you know, this invisible enemy that's out there with us, right? Like, but for them, it was much more prevalent um, and in, in your face. Like, because if you weren't falling in line with certain philosophies, you know, you're going you, to, you're going to be an outcast, right? This is why, yeah. well, in some sense, why Lao Tzu left society, right? It's actually easier in this day and age to be an outcast, I would say. But what's more difficult is that you're probably more in the in the in the sights of those who see you as a black sheep right so you know back in the day like only those in the immediate environment of Lao Tzu would know that he was a black sheep but now Kurt talking about this online and and that it exposes you to thousands of people that they can go oh man he's he's crazy you know what I mean like he's another but (laughs) (laughs) uh, but you're not you know and the thing is that uh with fear, you know, especially uh, with with you know, if we use Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi as as a, as an example, like Lao Tzu symbolized like he he had no fear to leave the society, right? Like he didn't feel attached to the society, and he didn't feel like he needed to live up to anyone's expectations. So it was like it was fine for him just to leave. Cool. It was a no brainer for Zhuangzi. He symbolizes what it is like for us to remain in society, uh, but to you know be in the world but not of it. So, so not to be touched by the, you know, the, the, the motivations of society. Um, yeah. and, and, he, and, and in doing so, you know, he did it with a, a sense of joyousness, you know, with, with actually no fear at all. And that comes down to the sense of personality, especially when you look at the Zhuangzi text, there's a whole, uh, the whole part of the premise, and this is actually part of Taoism in its essence, is about the dissolution of the identity. It's how do you, how do you, or why do you view fear? You know, and it comes through the Qing. It comes through then the solidity of this identity that you think you are. But it's again, it's a, it's a product of socialization, hmm. and you're only fearing someone else who is another product of socialization. So it's a bunch of people who are a product of socialization fearing each other because we all don't, uh, we all don't dance to the same drum. You know, we all see the world differently we all and and so that's where the fear arises where Zhuangzi is like no 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 you idiots if you if you don't identify with your identity and your role in society but you play it well you know you're not that you become a a full crazy person you play the role well but you know that in the end of the day it's just a role and and the way of the Tao is to be flexible which means that and to have variation which means that you can move from one role to another but not be inwardly touched by any of them, hmm. right? 
And so, but that's again, a higher skill that probably a Dallas Sage embodies, but it's something that we should all try to emulate in some sense, you know? Um, Yeah. It, 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 you know, and, and that warring States period, you know, and, and, and going back to Uwe and, and all the, the stimuli, fear and anger that was going on at that time. Right. And bringing it back to modern times, you know, when you look at Uwe, it's, it's, you know, non-doing, but it doesn't mean doing nothing. And that's hard for people to understand in terms of, you know, these, these were not lazy people, nor were they, you know, there were things going on. They weren't cowardly people and they weren't, by any stretch of the imagination, wimps. I mean, I mean, you know, I don't know about Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu, but a lot of Taoists, um, you wouldn't mess with them, but they don't go out (laughs) looking for fights. Right. It's, it's, so how do you, you know, so you fast the mind, right. And, and that can help you get back to the non-carp block, but how do you, you know, everyone right now, and offline, we were talking about the fact that, you know, like everyone today feels the need to be political and everyone wants to grab the pitchfork and storm, you know, the castle and all that. Yeah. How, you know, knowing that difference when things are going on where the way, well, but I'm sitting back and, and, and they're burning down the city. Uh, do I do nothing? Do I, do, you know, where for the people, you know, there's a lot going now. Like, I, I got to go fight. I got to go do this. I got to go do that. <laughs> So even if you tune it out, you know, what would the Taoists say in terms of, of knowing when to fight, knowing when to get involved, knowing when to do that, and how does that jibe or align with Uwe? Well, this is where the, the, the interpretation of, of the Uwe with uh, intelligent spontaneity. So this idea of how to act uh, effic- efficaciously with the environment, how to calibrate yourself perfectly to the environment. This is why, you know, uh, within uh, Qigong, Tai Chi Chuan, or even uh, other forms of combat-oriented martial arts, where you're training yourself to react uh, appropriately and immediately to each and every situation. So Lutz is, uh, he is saying in some sense that, you know, non-doing, we, we obviously should avoid conflict uh, where possible, right? But if it comes knocking at your door, you need to know mm-hmm. how to respond to that. And so what we have in the world at the moment is we have a lot of people who are very highly emotional, attached to their identity, which, which essentially means they cannot act appropriately and immediately to each and every situation, which means then that they only contribute to more drama, more chaos, more fear, as opposed to trying to, you know, in some sense, contribute to healing the situation, which is what a Taoist, which is, which is what would be a Taoist approach, right? And so you have this approach, and this is where, like, in some sense, training in uh, martial arts can help for that like because you, you can actually have a psychosomatic response to certain things your intuition can be much more attuned to the environment mm. but this is also part of the zen buddhist tradition as well within uh, zen koans and that so like the zen master will give you a koan and then you like they can be really crazy koans right like it can be like um i want an exhibition of zen tomorrow and, and it's like, hey, what? Like, because Zen is just like being, you know, present and like, what does it even mean? Like, and so there was one story where the student would go and this is in Japan. And then he was fretting all night. You know, he's like, I don't even know. Look, how could I please the master? You know what I mean? Like, because they're living in bottom in a Zen. So when he was coming back to the master's house, he saw a, 
a frog which is uh, which was a native to japan and, and very unique so he picked it up and he's like this is it you know and so he showed the master and the master's like it's too contrived you know you had to think oh. about it too much you know and so he wasn't acting immediately and appropriately and so zen training in a sense is to act zen is to try and to get you to now you could say, well, what is the right? What would be the right answer there? Well, it's, it's a story. It's a koan. I mean, it's not. You're not meant to get into those sorts of semantics, but um, the point is, is that it, you're training someone to become natural again, and this yeah. is what, especially what Taoism and Zen Buddhism, uh, what the, what those particularly those two paths, is about training you to become natural again. To they say in Zen to to come back to your original face before you were born and mm. so they, they talk about all of these sorts of you know they have all of these sorts of clever ways of explaining it but it's all because they want you you know and, and, and they speak about this in Taoism and zen as well about it just being a fundamental paradox because we are not natural we've been um we've been you know socialized we've gone through the rigors of education and this and that we're taught this is how you see this and how you see that so always the paradox is how do you become natural again? You know, this is always right. the, yeah, <laughs> the fundamental paradox, but obviously through training, through fasting the mind, through becoming aware of the socialization process that you've endured and, and why you see things a certain way, this is all, you know, but again, what you and I are talking about, Curtis, is something, it can be a bit mind blowing for people, you know, because, it really, in some sense, pulls the rug from from underneath people's feet because it doesn't really give you a chance to have an opinion on a certain thing or it doesn't give mm. your personality any oxygen. Um, yeah. And I've seen this personally. Like I've been to satsangs, in, especially in India, and I was at a satsang with uh, Muji back in 2010 and there was a, a, an, a, an American girl. And so like in, in, in satsang in India, it's all about like the dissolution of the identity, you know, who is the one who judges the world like this? And, you know, like, so you're really trying to investigate and trying to expose this, this fake sense of self that we believe we are. And, you know, she's like, but that's not what I believe and this and that, like, you know, and, mm. and he's like, belief is the problem. Hmm. You know, it's actually belief. That's the problem. And so your belief arises from identity. And so, and then he goes further into it, that, you know, thinker of thoughts and the doer of actions are causing all the trouble in the world and this and that. So this is like a deeper spiritual aspect to Eastern philosophy, which I think a lot of people, you know, if they haven't been sort of softly introduced to Eastern spirituality, if you go from zero to 100, they have a, a massive nervous <laughs> reaction to, you know, like yeah. what you and I are talking about. But, but it's a fact of the matter when you think about it, right? So. Yeah, and, I, and we're going to link to all your books because um, they're great uh, gateway drugs to Eastern philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, and also as someone I know you, who you love, uh, is, uh, Alan Watts and, and reading, uh, some of his books and, uh, well, all of his books, um, because he explains it in a very simple way. If, if, if you Google them, I know they're on Gaia, but, uh, I love to, they actually have his old videos oh, of his lectures when he was like on his houseboat or whatever, you know, and he's, he's got the cigarette and he's, and he's painting and, yeah, um, it's great, yeah. It, it's I wonderful. Remember, uh, uh, yeah. That was uh, the Eastern, I think Eastern Wisdom Modern Living. I think that series was called. And that when you mentioned that, like it brings up an old memory that I'll, that I'll share with you. Like when I was uh, up in the Himalayas in Nepal, uh, this was when 
before social media and all of this and that. So I'm in a cottage up meditating in the mountains. And the only thing I had was that set of videos on a little iPod. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was uh, really enjoyable. You know I mean? At night, there's not, there's hardly any electricity in Nepal, but I, I had enough to charge my iPod and I'd, I'd just be watching Alan. And, and it was, yeah, like you said, like he highly recommend him to anyone, you know, that is willing to listen to him. So, and again, and again, he's a great gateway drug to Eastern spirituality as well. So, yeah, yeah, and it, and um, it, you know, is is, and he he talks about it. You talk a lot about identity, and and you just did right, and and you, it, the identity kind of, you're the uncarved block, and you you pick up this, you know, it's like uh, there's the, the animated movie the, the, the Pixar movie, the Incredibles about the superhero family. And there's a scene where he goes to the Island to save his family. And there's this room where he's walking and all of a sudden he gets hit with this big black ball that like sticks to him. He kind of looks to it and rips it off. And he's like, ah, but all of a sudden they start shooting these big black balls at him. Right. And it overpowers him. And that's, as you described the uncarved block versus, you know, it's like we pick up this detritus over time that's our programming that becomes our identity to where we believe that we are our identity shifting, shifting gears a bit from Taoism to a different Eastern spirituality. Um, you had a podcast that is, uh, you know, I recently watched uh, the matrix trilogy and it was like, yeah, that was a documentary. That was a documentary, <laughs> but listening to your, your, and, and, you know, dots connect. And if you're in a place where they can connect and you're, and you know, the things come together, but you did a podcast about, uh, and I, I had, maybe I knew this, but never put it together. The word matrix and matter and mater and Maya. Yep. And kind of looking at that in terms of identity and the creative and the illusion that we create, can you, can you talk about that a bit? And, and cause some people mistake it that they, they actually think it's that, and who knows, maybe we are living in a simulation, but that it's actually more maybe about identity and maybe I'm totally butchering it, but. <laughs> no, no, you're hundred percent on, you're hundred percent on Kurt. And yeah, the, the word Maya, you, you look, the translation that they can say, you know, you can say it's illusion. So then people start then to overlay that. Oh, so we're living in some sort of uh, illusion, like, you know, and, and to be frank, in some of the ancient Hindu texts, they do talk about like atoms and stuff like that. Like, it's not like they didn't know that this, this was sort mm -hmm. of like a subatomic reality, but uh, Maya is more so to do with measurement and the identity as you, as you're alluding to. So the root of, of Maya is Marta. And as you mentioned with meter matrix, which are, which are all uh, involved with measurement. Right. And so Maya is related actually to the Qing. When, when you, mm -hmm. when you have a look at, so the Qing with the measurement, Maya is about how we measure the reality according to, you know, our sense of self, our sense of identity. So why it's an illusion is because we're measuring the reality. Why, why we don't see Brahman, the ultimate reality, is because we're measuring the reality according to our own beliefs, right? That's why we only see Maya. And so uh, in it, because this knowledge sort of comes from, well, it comes from Advaita Vedanta, which is a non-dualist path in Hinduism. And one of the great sages was Shankara. And Shankara had a phrase in the ancient text of the Viveka Chudamani, which he said, it's a paradoxical phrase, right? Where he said, uh, the universe is, no, no, he said, Brahman is real. The universe is unreal. The universe is Brahman. And everyone was like, what the hell are you talking about? So the thing is, what, 
the, the third line explains the two. So when we see the universe as the universe, as this and that and so forth and so on, it's Maya, right? It's mm -hmm. unreal. But when we see the universe as one whole, one reality, once we don't have this construction in our mind, this, this built identity, then we see the Brahman. Then, then the universe is real. So, mm -hmm. And it's like that old Zen thing, like that old Zen uh, poem where they said, you know, before I was enlightened, I, um, the mountain was a mountain, the lake was a lake. When I went away and I was confused, the mountain was the lake, the lake was the mountain. Once I become enlightened, the mountain was the mountain, the lake is the lake. So life is still the way it is, but it's your perception of the reality that has changed. You know, you know that there's yeah. differentiation and, and objects and this and that. You know, you're not going to go completely bonkers, but there's a sense of unity, a sense of oneness. And so, um, to like with Maya, what happens is um, when we go through the socialization process, we build this thing within ourselves called Brahmananda or Brahmanda. Brahmanda is uh, the subjective view or construction of reality. And so, once you have a Brahmanda within you, then you see Maya, right? And so, in uh, Hinduism, they speak about Shiva as like the destroyer, right? Uh, Shiva here being a, a representation of or an image of Brahman. And so the ultimate reality, so same as Tao. And so Shiva is thought of as the, the destroyer, but you could say Shiva is really a deconstructor because mm -hmm. what Shiva does is it deconstructs your Brahmananda to, you know, to heal yourself of this spell of Maya so you can see Brahman. So, so similar to going back to the uncarved block, going back exactly back yeah. to the original face. So, yeah. and that's what it is. See, Maya is this, uh, we, it's the illusion that we see when we superimpose our, our view of life onto a reality that's really naked. Hmm. So the reality is really naked. It's butt naked, hmm. but we superimpose our views of it, our Brahmanda onto it. And so we see Maya. And then we all conflict and everything arises from that. Would you say that most people, uh, the mass of people are conditioned to believe that the unity is the illusion versus yeah. the this and that is reality, right? The unity, that's, that's crazy. People talk about that and consciousness and all that. And the this and that, no, we got to be in our faces. And right. Yeah. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. Yeah, it definitely is. There's only small pockets of humanity. And you know, I shouldn't say small pockets. Like if you go to India, right, there's large. I mean, India is not small by any stretch, but com but compared to like the globe, it's it's a, it's only a, a seventh, right? Like a fraction of 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 the world that understands sort of what you and I are talking about, and not not all Indians understand that too. Let's be frank, but um, a, a lot of especially like, and this comes back to again Abrahamic religions and this and that, which also in some sense contribute to the cognitive style, especially particularly in the West where there are believers and non-believers. So instantly when you have believers and non-believers and God and you, there's already this and that. So mm. then God doesn't belong to nature. God is something separate from you. And then your worldview then is shaped from that fundamental belief. Whereas Eastern philosophy flips this and says, God is nature, is a part of nature. You are nature also. The only thing that eclipses that is this artificial programming you've had that's kind of like dirt on the window. You just can't see the sun coming through. And so you got to try and clean that window. Your window here is the mind. you got to clean the mind so the rays of the Tao can move through or the rays of Brahman can move through. 
and use you as it would use you, you know? Mm. So um, I, I, what you said is exactly right on, Kurt. It's most people are, and actually do in some sense, shame people who talk about oneness and wholeness and, and unity. They say, no, that's not. Uh, look at this situation. They always like try to use examples to try to, uh, to try and shame you from your perspective. But then all you need to say to that is, but, but didn't this, this and that mentality contribute to that becoming chaos? Mm. So like you're trying to say that unity that doesn't exist. But then when I explain to you that, that there's a separate mindset is what created conflict and disharmony. You don't want to accept it. You can't have it one or one or the other, you know, like it's, and that's where you can kind of come back to people with that sort of perspective. Because if we did have a unity state of consciousness, then we wouldn't be drawn into, uh, well, there wouldn't be separate forms of conflict. You know, everyone would be getting on with their life in a Uwe fashion and doing the best we can without having many superficial associations, if any superficial associations, you know? So it's, uh, you know, that you, well, you said that this and that mentality creates the chaos, but it's also when it's a this and that and good, good and bad and us versus them, right? It, it turns you or someone who's different than me, because now I'm defining ourselves and humans and nature by our differences. Mm. Then if we're different, then you might be my enemy. And if you're my enemy, then I have to fight and I'm constant. I, I'm in the, I go back to the fight, fight or fleet freeze. And something that you've said that I that I give you credit for, and I repeat it all the time, is that um, you you write a lot that we are in a yin deficient society, uh, and maybe maybe all maybe humanity has always been a for the most part a, a yin deficient. Can you explain that a little bit about what that means? People may have heard about the yin yang, and it's a cool thing that they get a pendant for as a tourist gimmick, right? And they hang around their neck. But but what does it mean that we're in yin deficient times or a yin deficient society? You know, what that means is like to understand the, the, the concepts of yin and yang uh, precisely is that yang is like the, the masculine energy of the universe. So it's the active force. It's the, you know, there's many ways to explain that. It's, it's the heavenly, it's the, uh, yeah. So it's related to doing basically, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and it's also, it's, it's the heat element within, within Taoism. Whereas when you have yin, yin is the, and, and again, don't, don't mistake in these for gender. These are, when I say masculine and feminine, it's more related to the, the, the active and the, and the passive, right? So the, the yin is the feminine. So it's the, the passive, uh, it's the non-doing element uh, and uh, the earthly element. And it's also uh, the cool, cool. It's, it's the energy is cool, right? Like, mm -hmm. so it's a cooling energy. And so, each human being and ha embodies yin and yang. Like the whole universe is built of yin and yang. For, like if you look at the metaphysics of Taoism, uh, before the universe was born, right, there was uchi. Uchi is, this, is Tao in stillness. And oh. then when we moved out of uchi, that's tai chi, Tao in motion. And so through Tao in motion, you have the two polarities, which is yin oh. and yang. And so that creates everything in the universe. That's why, you know, there are two sides to all coins, right? And so the problem in our world is, is that because of uh, the way society is set up, you know, success, like we ought to be at the top of a pedestal. Uh, 
and this may be a result also of the Western mindset kind of taking over the world as a little bit as well, the individualism, mm. the competitiveness. And so what happens then is we sort of double down on this being active, right? So we need to be active. We need to go get, we need to chase, we need to hunt. Um, and we need to constantly do this, you know? And so in Taoism, what you learn, especially particularly if you're practicing uh, an internal form of martial arts, is that the Tao Te Ching recommends, Tao Tzu recommends that, you know, we need to know, he actually says, know the male, but stick to the female. So know the young, but stick to the yin. Is, is what's is what actually said in Chinese. And so what that means is we should reside more in the yin and conservatively be active, mm. right? So be active when we need to be active, but not burn ourselves out and contribute to more uh more chaos in the world, more more heat. And you know, a lot of people when they say hot headed, they really are hot headed. they the heat, the energy is up in their mind. And and, yeah. and you know and <laughs> it's not just a metaphor it's, it's an actuality right and so the heat is up here all of the energy is in their mind they're emotional they go getters they're out there they're doing this they're doing that and they can't pull the plug on their life just to to be calm and to be shanti right and so to be peaceful and and so in in Dallas when they talk about the world in some sense what you said is right Kurt is has always in some sense been yin deficient where we've kind of turned away from uh rest and digest and we're fully yeah. we're, we're, we're locked into fight or flight right fight fight or flight is where we live and so in in a in a young uh dominant world we're constantly in fight or flight so we're constantly agitated and anxious and we're out there and we're trying to and and what this does is it burns your your system out and so you know in, in the nervous system we have the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system and so the sympathetic nervous system is linked to yang and the parasympathetic nervous system is linked to yin. And so yeah. the more you live a healthier, holistic lifestyle, the more you are a much more balanced person. So the more, the more you activate the parasympathetic, the more you are accessing the yin. And that's when you're much more tranquil, much more present, much more able to deal with the situations at, at hand. But when you live in a, do a yang dominant world, you're constantly turning the sympathetic nervous system on, which means then you're constantly agitated, you're constantly doing, and all that does is burn you out. You don't have a healthy balance of, you know, of conservatively applying the yang, and and remaining mainly in the yin, and so, yeah. and that's why in Taoism, one of the big focuses is, is on humility, right? The Tao Te Ching is basically a book of humility. And so this is why Lao Tzu always uses uh, the feminine, the valley spirit, the bellows, all of these things that are empty and, and uh, soft, he uses as a positive metaphor as opposed to like in Western philosophy, we wouldn't use those as positive metaphors. Humility can be related to humiliation and, you know, we, so forth and so on, right? Like say, yeah. which is very strange from the Eastern perspective, but. We have to access more of the yin, so. Yeah, it's it's you know I boxed for several years and and we had a coach who said boxing's very simple hit and don't get hit, and it's like I think of the hitting as the the yang and the and don't get hit right and there's some boxers who weren't strikers they were very yin boxers you know like Floyd yeah. Mayweather's and that's a criticism of him, but people don't realize that when he wants to give you some yang you're in trouble but he doesn't exactly. he conserves his energy and. 
when you could when, just say you could just say then that he's a smarter boxer, right? Like he's conserving more of the yin, and you know, and and actually in boxing, if you understand boxing, part of the skill of boxing is avoiding being punched right. most of the time, right. right? Like so, we should be giving that credit as well. Like okay, Floyd's not the most uh, exciting fighter. Like you know, he doesn't go out there and just start banging on. But you've got to admire his evasive skills. Yeah, and that's a that's a that's an ability of yin. And, and yeah, that's, and that's there's the entire thing. martial arts, right? Like Aikido, yep. right? That, that, that are completely in, right? That, that you yep. come to me and I'm going to roll you over and <laughs> you don't even know what happens, right? Not, not, no punches, kicks. And people, no. people kind of shit all over those because, oh, they're not exciting and kicks. And, you know, you don't do the Jean Claude Van Damme splits, but <laughs> it's pretty <Yeah>. effective. <laughs> it is effective. Yeah. Well, it's, and, and that's the thing, like part of, and I mentioned this actually, I think I mentioned this in Fasting the Mind, part of the, like to, to talk about yin and to talk about being receptive is that in martial arts and especially the martial arts that arose from uh, China is all about how to fall. It's about how to mm. move with the blow as opposed to being standing frozen where you receive it and you get bludgeoned. Right. And so I mentioned in the book about my, my wife's uh, brother, my brother-in-law, Sungyu, when he was younger and he was practicing Hapkido, which is uh, very similar to Aikido, um, all he did for the first few months was learn how to fall. And he was really angry. He's, you know, <laughs> he's a seven-year-old watching, you know, all of these Kung Fu movies and this and that. And he wants to go out there and belt it, right? But then all he learns is how to fall for, for three months. And he's like complaining to his mom and dad. And it's like, but that's, that's actually, that's the, the most important part of the skill. Is to learn yeah. how to move with the blow, because if you don't learn how to move with the blow, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get knocked out. So you got to learn how to be flexible, and this is again embracing the yin. It's about when you're embracing the yin, like you mentioned before, Kurt. Is that when in like use use boxing as the analogy? That's your your strikes are being appropriate and immediately and immediate to the situation. So you're not just going out there swinging like this because you're just going to get KO'd doing that. But if you go out there and you, you, you bide your time and then you see the opportunity arise, right? Like that's, and that's a metaphor for our life. Like all of these metaphors and Taoism, their concepts are all about how all of us can live skillfully in our life as opposed to, you know, a lot of us are living very clumsily in our life and in the modern day. Yeah. Yeah. And that when you fast the mind, I mean, part of that, and you mentioned the meditating every day is that breath and kind of lowering, lowering that cortisol, right. And, and kind of, uh, and bringing it down. So you're not, like you said, hotheads, we're, yep. we're out there. We want to go swing. We wake up because we're always told that happiness is right around the corner. I mean, it keeps, you know, uh, it's like Winston Churchill had a quote about democracy. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, capitalism is kind of the same way, right? I prefer yeah. a free market to an authoritarian market, of course, yeah. but it also, it also uh, is fueled by us, a very yang mentality of, well, I got this iPad, but I need the next iPad. I need this, but I need something bigger. And when you wake up, that's a very, that goes to the indeficient as well. And, mm. and it's like, it's the onus is on us, right. To, yep. to get us ourselves into there to, um, it's like eating sugar all the time. Right. It's a fast burning yep. fuel. If you're mm. fat adapted, you can go all day without eating. If you're sugar adapted, 100%. It, it's that stimulus, it burns. And then you, you want more, you want more, you want more. Yep. So being in, um, 
And sugar, yeah. again, sugar contributes to, uh, again, if you look at it psychosomatically, it contributes to the young. It contributes to being mm. agitated. It contributes. And so what people are doing, like they're, they're going home after work, right? So they've been, their, paras- their sympathetic nervous system has been turned on all day. They've been go-getters all day. They go home, they smash a couple of donuts, eat a pizza, and they're watching Netflix. And all you're doing, even though you think you're sitting down and you think that you're relaxing, your sympathetic nervous system's turned on. You're young. You're not really relaxing. The sugar's making you anxious. You know, it. You know, we could go on about sugar, right? Like the, the negative yeah. effects of sugar. But like, this is why Taoist, especially even Taoist diets, were geared more towards being fat adapted. You know, and mm. so, but and, and even if you look at Tibetan cultures, right? Like if you go into Tibet, not just Tibet. If you go to North India, uh, Nepal, Tibet, and I and I learned this when I when I was living in the Himalayas, is that you'd go trekking, right, for ten. 10 kilometers and then you'd pull up and then there'd be a lady selling uh, tea and the tea is infused with yak butter. So you have that, Mm. you have that yak butter tea and that keeps you going. And, and, and actually the meditation masters in Tibet would use these drinks to, to calm down, to settle down, to become more yin. So they could go deeper into their meditation practices in, in the, in the caves up in the Malias, you know, a lot of this information is not out there, but it, but that's, if you go there, Kurt, you, you, everything is with yak butter or, you know, like, and it's just a, it's probably a heaven for you, I think. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Carnivore. And, and, and you would let be led to believe that they're all, uh, yeah. vegan or something like that. And even, no, no, even not, not yeah. Not yeah. No. Even if you look at the Hindu society, like Hindu, uh, even if you look at Hindu culture, they haven't always been primarily vegetarian, you know, hmm. like that's a bit of a myth as well. Um, obviously, you know, um, when we were hunters and gatherers, we were predominantly fat adapted, right? Like it's, it's not like, uh, it's always been like from day one, Hindus were, were vegetarian. That's not the case. Like, and there's still a lot of Hindus. If you go to India, if you go to especially, particularly the big cities like Calcutta or Mumbai or, or Delhi, heaps of people are eating chicken biryani and, you know, uh, chicken masala and all, all of these. Right. Dishes, yeah. You know? So, it's not like, it's not like the, the, the way that we think of it in the, in the West. Right. So, right. Yeah. But particularly those mountain cultures, they are very fat adapted. So the mountain cultures over there. Well, you know, Jason, we've talked about, you know, when it comes to fear and getting in, in a state of love, we've talked about fasting the mind, some, some key ways to do that meditation, uh, getting yourself in that more yin state versus yang and and that you are both versus just one or the other right you need you need both that moves it forward and by the way i think it was you that introduced me if it wasn't i'm going to give you credit anyways but uh i think you introduced me um well i asked you david hawkins yeah 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 yeah. so you introduced me to him and and uh and his book in terms of you know what where true power comes from versus force and um and those things. So I, I recommend that as well. Thanks for introducing you introduced me to a number of people, Joseph, I think Joseph Campbell, jo- you yeah. uh, know, in your writings and it just kind of opens up this, this rabbit hole. Um, but then also an identity and getting back to that uncarved block by getting rid of that detritus. A question I have for you and, and kind of introduce, you know, in the intro, I, and we're going to have all your books and everything, but you know, most people, and you're, you're in Australia, so you grew up in Western society. Yeah. Um, most people don't grow up and say, when I get older, 
I'm going to be a philosopher. Hmm. And if they do, it's probably like Greek philosophy or something, right? In the Western world, uh, you're an author and philosopher. How did that come about? <laughs> and you've lived, I mean, you've, you already talked about living in yeah. Tibet and in the mountains yeah. and I know Thailand and, and, and all around. Yeah. How, did, how did you come to where you are now through that journey? Yeah, sure. It wasn't by choice. I can tell you that. I mean, it wasn't by me intentionally doing it, I should say. You know, it, it really just came about by traveling. I mean, I had interest in philosophy, you know, when I was younger, but I never thought it would, you know, I never thought it was anything outside of a curiosity. You know, it wasn't like, because when I was a kid, I, I, I my, my mother and father weren't religious. Like I didn't grow up in a religious home. Um, mm. All I loved to do when I was younger was sport. So like all I was playing when I was a kid was rugby league. And all I thought about was like, I'm going to be a professional player when I was older. And when those realities hit when I was a bit older and I wasn't going to be, then, you know, <laughs> my life, <laughs> my life went in a different direction, but it really came about more so with um, when I met my wife and we started traveling and we moved over to Asia. Uh, she always told me a lot about India, right? And I thought, to me, I thought, never, I never thought about India, you know, like I watched the Indian cricket team, you know, like they, and, and stuff like that. But I, I didn't think about India per se. I mean, obviously I knew about the philosophies, but I didn't, I had not fallen down that rabbit hole. And so basically all that happened was we moved to India. Well, first we were living in Thailand, but then we moved to India. And that was just a game changer for me. Like it was just about being around the people, um, on a daily basis, you know, seeing a different, I, I know now it's a different cognitive style. When I was a lot younger, I didn't really know, but being around people with a more of a, in, in some sense, a more of a holistic mindset mm. about things and, and not being superly, uh, super agitated about a lot of things that, that we typically would be in the West. And like, it's, it just had such a deep effect on me. Like not just the fact of going to ashrams or monasteries, but being, sort of engrossed in the culture for long periods of time. And I mean years, you know, not just a holiday, like going there for years to to live and to study. And the study became a byproduct of living there. Like I was living there, like like I've mentioned to you privately before about going, living in Varanasi, where the Ganga is, where the Ganges River is, where, where that's famous for. And I was going to like Jiddu Krishnamurti's house, our old house every day, Hmm. reading books from Jiddu Krishnamurti, learning Sanatana and Dharma Hinduism from, from yogis and, and, and people of that nature. And just being in that environment and drinking, you know, eating Indian food and drink and just, you know, just embracing something completely new. And, and I don't know if it was sort of a, it, well, I guess it's in some sense a blessing the way I was raised that I was never really braced with a lot of boundaries, you know, hmm. a lot of things that defined me. Like, cause my parents sort of just let me, gallivant around and around and do my thing you know so they knew i liked certain things and they tried to nurture that not that they didn't discipline me and this and that of course they did but um we didn't we didn't have a lot of uh social conditioning hmm. so when i when i started traveling when i when i came across cultures like particularly in southeast asia and south asia it for me it was just like a breath of fresh air like i was i was just on fire like it was just something that it was hard to explain, you know, like I always explain it to people like it just sort of clicked for me. Like when, like when I first went to India and, and when I first landed in Calcutta, it sort of felt like a homecoming, so yeah. to speak, like, because the people were so easy and I felt like I could, you know, have a decent conversation then N nothing against Australia and anything like that, but like a conversation at a deeper level, 
you know? So, interesting. and that's sort of how it came, came together, Kurt. It was just years of living there, years of study. I thought, I, I used to write articles for websites like about 13, 14 years ago about this knowledge. And then it was just a conversation with my wife when we were living in Northern Thailand. I thought, you know, I feel like maybe I should write a book, but I always thought writing a book's a bit of a task, you know? And, but then it just, it came very easy. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to explain. A lot of it came very easy oh. for me. The knowledge came easy. Uh, writing and everything came easy. Um, the ability to dissect. You know, some teachers said to me that I had a, a sort of a, a unique ability to translate this for, for Westerners. Hmm. Um, whether they're right or wrong. I mean, I leave that up to other people to decide, but. It was uh, your inner nature, right? And that was Uwe in action, right? Easily coming to it rather than grasping. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And I think that, that that's, just, that you're, you're, you're spot on. Like I didn't really try to make this happen. It was one of those paradoxes of, uh, trying not to try, right? I achieved yeah. something. I achieved something by not trying to achieve it in some sense. Um, not that I've achieved anything, so to speak, but like what I'm doing now is just a byproduct of a, a, a giving my life the space hmm. to to live my life, you know? And this is why I always tell people to travel. It's like they always get confused about what they should do. Like they think they should write books or they think they should do and this and that. And I always say, travel, give yourself the time, open your life up. And actually see what arises within you naturally. What's your, like you said, Kurt, what's your inner nature? What's your inner calling? And so for me, it was Eastern philosophy and, and speaking to cool people like you. And, you know, for other people, it's football. For other people, it's, you know, making donuts. You know, it's, it's different. That's what, that's what yeah. life's about. There's, there's variation. And, and I think a lot of people, particularly in spirituality, they think that all people should be the same. But if you look at it from a Taoist perspective, we're all different in some sense. We all have a unique Li organic pattern that is in Chinese. And that can only come out when you stop forcing your life to be a certain way and you start down-regulating your, your identity. And so what happened to me was when I was traveling, the Australian Jason can't survive in Calcutta because it doesn't matter what problems I have on an Australian level. They're, they're meaningless in India. <laughs> You know, so there's, that's what traveling does. It, it has a massive effect on, on your ego. And that's why in the yogic tradition, the yogis never stay at a place any longer than a day. Because mm. they say that if you stay at a place longer than a day, then you start to pick up the environment's habits and tendencies. And I mean, and, and there's an exact science to that, right? Like we pick up the, the energy of the environment and the smart solution to that is to be like you and to pick an environment that's more psychologically healthy for yourself and to stay there as opposed to trying to make it happen in a New York city, for example. Well, that one day rule, it, it, it would be healthy to apply to relatives too. When they visit, <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a saying it's like three days and the start to the fish start to smell or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. It probably like starts that. a bit sooner, right? Like who knows? <laughs> Well, Jason, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and uh, really appreciate our discussion, our long discussion before we even taped. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was wonderful. JasonGregory.org. I'm going to put all the links to your books in the show notes and spread it. Um, but I really appreciate this. this has been a wonderful discussion and, and it's so needed uh, from so many people right now. So thank you. Thank you, brother. And I, and I want to uh, yeah, give you kudos too. You know, like you're doing a lot of great work, like I mentioned earlier. And, you know, you're an inspiration to a lot of people. So 
Well, thank, thank you, you very for much. Everything you do. I appreciate that.